What do you think about when you think about your teaching? If someone asked you to describe the most recent lesson you've taught or you've seen taught, what would you talk about? In telling that story, would you find yourself describing your students, your teaching, the interactions, or the context that led to the whole thing happening? Maybe you'd talk about yourself. Maybe you'd like to, but you'd stop yourself because as a teacher, we're not supposed to talk about ourselves. If we asked you to fill in this sentence, my classroom is blank centered. You'd know you're supposed to say student centered, right? Or are you? Hi, I'm Shana White. And I'm Zach Chase. And you're listening to Course of Mind, the learning sciences podcast for MISTI. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Vanessa Rodriguez, assistant professor at NYU and member of the Center for Early Childhood Health and Development with the Department of Population Health and co-author of the book, The Teaching Brain. We asked Dr. Rodriguez what kinds of awareness research suggests teachers should bring with them into the classroom. What she told us turned the idea of student-centeredness on its ear and suggested our schools and systems would do well to start noticing the fact teachers are people too. She also helped us understand five key awarenesses educators can bring into their practice as they think through what is happening in their classrooms. Curious to find out how you can tell a fuller story of what happened the last time you taught? Us too. Welcome to Course of Mind. trying to kind of think about how we can use the research that goes on. And I think you are probably aware that there's a lot of great research around learning and education that doesn't necessarily make it into the classroom or that, that doesn't necessarily get translated into practical uses for teachers. And so we were hoping you could help us think through a problem here. Previous uh, episode, we talked a lot about how teachers can set some tone for safety so that the brain is ready to learn at the very beginning of, of a school day. And so we were hoping you could help us think through what are some practical ways that teachers can be aware of student needs uh, as they're going through through a class period or going through a school year, what are some what are some pieces that you've found as as being successful? So this is a I think this is a super tricky question um, because the best thing that teachers can actually do to be aware of learner needs is to be aware of who they are. And so I know that sounds a little bit odd because I think as teachers we're used to practicing a student centered model. Um, and what I am basically arguing, uh, both in my research and in my work with universities and schools and teachers, is that the more aware you are of yourself as a teacher, the better you can actually set up um, a support system for the children in your classroom. So when, when you say aware of yourself, do you mean kind of aware when you're hungry, aware of, you know, you had a bad day or there's a spot on your tie or what kind of awareness are you talking about? when we think of self as a teacher, and so this is specific to you being a teacher, right? There are actually three selves that we've recognized uh, in our data that have emerged over the years. And that's that a teacher has a private self, and that is what is just private to you, maybe no one other than you knows, um, that 
would include your own needs. That can be income needs, emotional needs, physical needs. It would include your identity. That could be your race, ethnicity, culture, gender. Um, and it also includes your your values and your experiences, uh, which might be why you got into teaching, what brought you there, what you think the purpose of that role is. Then there's the public self, um, and that's the recognition that you are on display as a teacher and that you can both be authentic but have a different self that's on display uh, than who you are privately. And then really specific to teaching and, and kind of unique about teaching is the perceived self. And that makes a lot of sense because the teacher is only a teacher because they have students, right? So the perceived self is that uh, awareness that you are perceived by your students, by their families, by your colleagues, your director, and so on. Um, and having an awareness that those three selves are always a part of you and that's who's actually interacting with the student um, is what I mean by having a sense of self. It, 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 to me, sounds like there's a little bit of a carryover uh, or a connection with kind of Jungian understanding of identity. Is that a completely foreign or silly way to think about things? The distinction here is that a teacher is not taught how to see themselves that way. A teacher is taught typically um, from a kind of a training model of being selfless and putting the students at the center. So if you put students at the center, uh, the struggle with that is that it then asks the question of, well, then where are you? And the reality is, is that you're never actually uh, fully aware of who that student is. You only know who you believe that student to be. And that's about who you are. So if you are blind... Wait, hold on. I feel like you just said something very important. So say that one more time, please. So we're, we're never teaching who the student is. We're always teaching who we believe the student is. And that's based on who we are. And so if we don't know who we are, and we've not been taught to explore it in that way, then that's actually a very, very difficult obstacle. Um, we're teaching our theory of the student, and that's the best we can do as humans. But having an awareness of who we are, who's our private self, our public self, our perceived self, having that an awareness allows us to start uncovering why we see students in certain ways. And so tied within that are issues of implicit bias, right? Tied within that are why do we believe certain students can achieve and others can't achieve? Why do we believe certain students are shy while other students are passionate, right? Like, so I think a lot of that work um, that has also been embedded in how do we support students in their learning? How do we support brain development? How do we support all of these various areas is still kind of missing this piece of um, the way in which we see students is based on who we are. And if we're never taught to further explore that and pull it apart in a way that is not negative and is not blaming, um, then we're still kind of missing the mark on how to support teachers in their development. That literally just blew my mind. I think it blew Zach's <laughs> mind as well. Um, and I guess I want to probe a little bit more because you said that process is um, not necessarily comfortable. 
Um, and I guess for me, I'm curious with the overlap between those three different selves, how hard is that exploration process for people um, in just your research? And then I know your work with teacher development. How hard has that process been um, with your work with other teachers? I wouldn't say it's unbelievably difficult. It's difficult if you're approaching it from a place of we already know, right? Because we don't know. Um, we don't know what that would look like. Uh, we don't have years worth of research or years worth of professional development supporting teachers in understanding who they are. Um, it's actually a really uh, kind of black box of understanding. Well, that, that paints a pretty bleak picture. <laughs> Where do we have research then? We have a ton of research around teacher behavior, right? Otherwise known as teacher practice or teacher best practice. Um, but that's one very small piece of who a person is, right? Our behaviors are not really who we are. And, and in all of this work around learning and the brain and the mind, um, we know our behaviors are, are a very small piece and our what's happening in our mind is really what's driving that. So I wouldn't say it's unbelievably difficult, but it does take uh, a shift in how we approach teachers. And so it means saying to a teacher, we're not going to put students at the center, we're going to put no one at the center. We're going to realize this is an interaction and that all of the people involved in that interaction uh, is someone we need to understand. We're going to start with you because that's the only person you have control over. And now let's start pulling apart who you are. Okay, that sounds both terrifying and a little difficult. It's easiest to do when we just ask teachers to share their experience but not share their experience in this like, this is a nice anecdotal story you can tell about you and your children in the classroom, but instead share very, very detailed experiences. Uh, like in, in professional development, I've done it before where I ask them, please describe the absolute worst interaction you've ever had with a student and the absolute best interaction you've ever had with a student. And then we just start pulling that apart. And from there, what emerges is, what is their public self? What is their private self? What is their perceived self? Like, and I don't have to do much other than helping them to pull it apart. So it's not like I'm giving them any information. I'm just helping them organize what's already in their mind so that they can become aware that it's there. And this is a way we can organize it so that you can then intentionally do your work with children. I think I think about this in a kind of platonic allegory of the cave kind of way that I would imagine that awareness then leads me to kind of step out of the cave and be blind for a little while. Is there a disorienting piece that teachers who are thinking through this process should probably expect? So I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to grasp onto your cave metaphor. I don't know why <laughs> I'm. This is not who I normally am. But uh, I think oh, yes, yes, it is. So in the allegory of the cave, right? The the people realize the images on the wall are not real. No, I think they... I've got it. So okay. so you tell me if I've got it. Yeah. Okay. This is probably better than me continuing yeah. to talk. <laughs> If I do uh, get what you're saying, it's actually perfect in line, uh, perfectly in line with what we understand about the brain and how the brain learns. Um, and so all of my work is really grounded on a theory called dynamic 
skill theory. And what dynamic skill theory basically says is the brain's forever changing. It's always, you know, changing based on the context that it's in. Um, and that when learning happens, um, let's say we were to map a student's uh, development, right? And we're going to say this child is learning X and we're mapping that across like an X and Y, you know, table. Typically, we, we think we want to see that it's always a, a line, right, of exponential growth. It's always going up. But in reality, what's happening is that there's all of these dips and spurts that occur. And those dips and spurts, like of this swirly line, generally goes up over time, but it has these dips and spurts. And the learning's happening in the dip, right? And as a researcher, or even as like an administrator, a teacher looking at this data might say, oh no, this student, like their learning went down. Look, look at what we're seeing. This line goes down. But actually what's happening is as they gain new information and they remap that and they have this new mental model, right? They formed new neural networks. Everything they knew before is challenged. So they may have totally gotten addition and subtraction. And then you teach them multiplication. And everything they knew about addition and subtraction is now challenged. And so it's going to look like they're in this like dazed and confused and I don't know what I'm talking about anymore and my full understanding of the world is totally challenged. But then when they figure that out and they recalibrate their new knowledge into their old knowledge, they're actually going to be more cognitively savvy than they were before. So in, in this question, which I think you raised of like, once a teacher has awareness, I'd say the first thing is you can, you can never have awareness in the sense that it's always ongoing, right? You're always going to be aware of some new aspect of yourself, right? It's just going to continually deepen. Um, and so rather than thinking of a teacher's development the way we normally do, which is they have this best practice, right? And we have this list of best practices. We have to think of a teacher as a learner. And so we would never say a student in our classroom has this knowledge. We would say, here's the new knowledge they developed. And it kind of goes along this trajectory over time. It's never ending. The same is true for the teacher. She or he is a learner. It's never ending. They're never going to have something. It's going to continue to develop and enhance itself. And it's going to be more cognitively complex over time. As they start to gain more awarenesses, is it going to challenge everything that they've done before? Yes. Is it going to seem like they're in this like flurry of confusion? Yes. Um, but where they come out of that next is going to be much more sophisticated in their ability to engage in their work with students than it was before. How does this impact a teacher being able to make a classroom culture responsive and able to meet a broader sense of needs if they are aware of these perceived kind of notions that they have? How does that impact their ability to lesson plan? Is it kind of a very seamless process or is there still a lot of tugging and pulling there? I think there's 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 going to be both, right? So I think there are pieces of it that you're as a teacher, going to be able to recognize where you say, oh, I can shift this small little thing. Like I'm always assuming that my, uh, my students who come from this background are shy, right? But 
that's an assumption. Maybe I should actually talk to them, right? Like maybe that's not what shy looks like. It's just what I think shy looks like, right? Um, so there are pieces of it that can be fairly seamless. Um, and then there are pieces that are definitely going to be really hard, right? What, what we're asking teachers to do in a scenario where we say you need to become aware of who you are on multiple levels is telling them to acknowledge that they matter, right? And that they matter in every decision that they make with their students. And that's just not the way they've been trained. And if we layer on top of that, so there's multiple layers to this, if we layer on top of that, any teacher who is female, right? That's not the way we train females in our society, that they matter, right? And that who they are actually is gonna greatly impact their choices. If we layer on top of that, uh, whether they are of color, whether they are immigrant, whether there's all of these other layers um, where that's not only not what's in the training of teachers, but it's also not how we've been conditioned in our society um, to matter. So actually saying put the student at the center is a safer space for teachers because it means they can avoid how they impact the situation. Um, but saying students are at the center also ignores students. And so part, part of my really passionate, I don't know if I would say passionate, but part of my soapbox is saying when we claim that putting students at the center helps support students, uh, we're actually doing the opposite. We're completely ignoring students by saying we're putting them at the center. So that's you know, part of my messaging in, in this work around awareness. So it also occurs to me that this has some pretty deep uh implications for principals and administrators, anybody who's leading a learning space, because it requires them to also kind of look at their teachers in that in a very similar way, right? So if you have a faculty that is made, I mean, it, it, by definition, any group of people is diverse. But if you have a faculty that's made up of knowably diverse people, there's some visible diversity there, uh, maybe folks are, are coming from different spaces, then it is incumbent upon you as a leader to do some of that work with your faculty? Is, would, would that be a, a piece that you would also argue? Uh, I, I would and I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's, it's in the present is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the kind of simple uh, nature of this work and awareness is that it seems very intuitive, right? Like, of course, the human in the classroom, who is the teacher interacting with the other humans in the room, the students, has an impact on how they interact with one another, right? That seems like very intuitive, of course, we believe that to be true. But if we look at all of the ways in which we train teachers, if we look at the ways in which we evaluate teachers, if we look at the ways in which we attempt to support teachers, none of that is actually embedded within any of those. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So what do we look for? There's five awarenesses. The, the one that's most obvious, right, is awareness of learner. Then there is awareness of your teaching process that would include anything in your practice, planning, implementing, reflecting, as well as your classroom culture. Everything goes in there. Awareness of interaction, meaning are you aware that you are interacting with students and that there are various types of interactions? Some of them come from love and bonding with your students. Others are about recognizing you have a mutual effect on one another. Then there's awareness of context. That's anything outside of your four walls of the classroom. Right? So that could be things that are external and about the student, like their families. 
things that are external and about the institution that you're in. That could be the philosophy of the school, the community that you work within, and then things that are external that are about um, kind of large scale uh, things like the government, current events happening around the world. And then the last one is awareness of self. Okay, so those are the things we look for, but like, what would the advice be to a leader or an administrator who's looking to, to pick up on these pieces? So what I talk to principals about is transparency and that teachers uh, should be able to evaluate whether they fit in a school based on the principal being transparent about what matters to them. And a principal would typically say, like, everything matters to me, right? Like everything. In order for you to be an amazing teacher, you should have these best practices, right? It's a short order right there. (laughs) Right. Um, They go do observations and a teacher could be observed, check off everything in terms of best practice, right? And that list of best practice. And a principal could still be like, yeah, but... Something about this teacher still right, isn't right, right? And what I say to principals is take your last three observations of a teacher and have ones in there that you're like, I didn't think this teacher did a really amazing job all the way through. I think this teacher is phenomenal. And see if you can find those five awarenesses in there, which come up most often. And that will tell you what you care about in your school. And that will tell you um, what you want teachers to be doing. And if you're transparent about that, then your teachers actually have something to strive towards or something to decide, you know what, I'm not a good fit for this school. Um, But there's more transparency in that, right? Because the reality is, is the teacher, the principal, just like a teacher, walks into that classroom every day and they are looking for something. But if they are not aware of what they're looking for, then that's not going to allow the teachers to really have deep conversations or really uh, kind of set goals for themselves as teachers to meet those expectations. Right? There's not transparency. And what are you really looking for? What do you really care about at the school? Vanessa, I have a uh question that relates to actually something that happened recently in the classroom. As I mentioned before, I work and support local schools teaching AP computer science. And our students were working on their create task, which is something they have to submit to the college board. And I went through and read through submissions and was kind of disheartened and hurt by, I guess, I knew it wasn't their best. Um, as far as what the product that they submitted to me. And I had a conversation with my students and the students I work with, I have a class of 19 and they're all black students. Um, They're all freshmen and the school is 90% free and reduced lunch. And I tried to express to them as a black woman that the kind of the system is not necessarily set up for Black children to be always successful, our public educational system. It was intriguing to me hearing you talk about these awarenesses and just a principal coming in and, and, you know, observing and doing those types of things. But I'm curious from my own betterment with the students that I work with in the future is how can I kind of take a situation where I don't feel like my students overall did the best that they could on some sort of assignment, but not necessarily 
internalize it and make the students feel bad, but see it as something that they can grow from or something that we all can be better um, with not only my own practices as a classroom teacher, but also them as students. So I'm curious with those five awarenesses, if you could give me some free advice as far as how I could have maybe navigated or handled a situation where I feel like students are maybe not performing their best or putting their best work forward. So I think the the first thing I would consider as the teacher in that scenario is pulling apart what did you think they should have produced and then why do you think they should have produced that? And then from there, considering is that because of the awareness I have about my teaching process right? Like were there things that I planned in my routines, in my lessons, in my um, kind of clarifying for them expectations that caused me to have the expectations I had for their product? What within my awareness of learner for these particular students was about my expectations of them. And so like within awareness of learner, there's needs, meaning their emotional needs or physical needs, and then also development, having a consideration of where they are individually and collectively as a class. And is that what you were thinking about when you design certain lessons and routines and uh, expectations for products? Was there a match between those of like, I know who these students are developmentally, individually, collectively, and I also know what their emotional needs are. And I designed my teaching around that and then go over to the awareness of self and say, is there something about my private values that caused me to have any of those expectations of the student? that I was not aware of. Did the fact that you are a black woman and you have black students, is there something playing a role in there that caused you to have certain expectations of them in their development or in their emotional needs that caused you to plan your lessons in a certain way? Um, Or did that not play a role? Did you not consider that in your planning? And so the reason I kind of often see those three playing together is that we're not taught to plan as teachers with ourselves in mind, right? We're taught to plan with best practice in mind, and we're taught to plan with learner needs in mind without really delving into who that learner is or who we think they are. And so I would kind of think about that scenario and say, what was I really expecting? Why was I expecting that? What about that student caused me to expect that? What about myself caused me to expect that? And was that all really clear to them? A piece that I heard you say, Shana, that I I want to pull out there is you also mentioned the college board, right? And so, Vanessa, you mentioned the the self, the kind of policy governing. Mm -hmm. So awareness of context. Yep. And that, that that's also at play in this particular example, too, right? Because there's a there's a certain curricular expectation that Sheena doesn't necessarily get to get to play with, but she has to be aware of. Exactly. And and it plays a role in all of our decision making. Right. And that's something that often stays hidden. Sometimes we hide it from ourselves in that we can think like, no, I was just planning the lesson for the learners. Right. 
but we always have to be planning the lesson for who's judging it. And so we know, even if there's not a direct kind of short-term link of that judgment, say, by our directors or by a Department of Education, right? Like it's not a direct short-term link. There's a larger link to who are we prepping these children for, right? Like who's the society that we're prepping them for? And that plays a role in how we design all of our lessons and all of our projects for students. And we do have different expectations. And sometimes we're not aware that we do have different expectations, but we do. And it's the the thing about an awareness is that the reason I say it's not something that you can have is because it, it means just that you're aware of it. And therefore you can make decisions about how you're going to intentionally plan for that or intentionally ignore it. And that's the key uh, kind of in the design as a teacher. And that's interesting um, to take that perspective. Like Zach talked about, for me, my expectation was we have to make sure that this meets college board requirements. And I think with computer science is tricky because in my classroom, I have a lot of brilliant computer scientists, but this task asks for written responses. And so this is one of the few times I've actually had to read written responses or see kind of like essay style writing from my students. And so my expectation is, well, they're brilliant at computer science. They're going to be able to express this in written form. And that wasn't necessarily the case, I guess, for me. And that was very insightful for you to say my expectations. But then as that kind of put on the college board expectations are kind of what my expectations have all all of a sudden been assumed to be. And I know they're doing another task soon. So it's kind of like, what can I do differently to make sure the outcome is a little bit better for everybody, um, myself included? Because like you said, the students aren't the center and myself, I'm not the center as well. Um, And so this is a good practice for me as far as learning, hearing from you, what I can do better for their next task that's going to be all written based as far as my expectations for them as computer scientists and then my expectations for them as writers, which can be two totally different things. Mm-hmm. And your even your expectations, like I, I'm a believer in transparency and your expectation could be, you know, I'm, I'm going to let them in and know, uh, I'm going to let them know that I want them to be meeting what these board requirements are, because that's who gets to decide a certain level of their success. But that's not who they are as successful learners. That's meeting a specific expectation that's going to allow them to then do other things they want to do. So there's great empowerment in that transparency. And it also kind of allows us to be openers of those gates because we know we as practitioners know what gates exist um, within our educational system. And so that empowerment piece, like you said, it's kind of like we're able to push, maybe open that gate or that door that is stereotypically closed because we know that those hindrances are going to exist. So how can we best equip students to push open that gate either themselves or we set them up so that they can push open that gate themselves to get to where they would like to be? Yeah. Were, were there decoders for sure. So to close as our, maybe our last piece, I'd love to know if there are some things that people are doing, I mean, some practices that you see that maybe you look at and say, oh, I wish they would stop doing that and start doing this. Is there anything that you, that a person kind of tomorrow who's listening right now could say, all right, I'm going to try this out tomorrow. 
so you're trying to get me in trouble as we close. Is, uh, is yeah, what, but just oh. as we close. So <laughs> I mean, what are the odds somebody's hung with us to the end of a podcast episode? <laughs> Good job, Zach. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a troublemaker. Um, Did we not say that at the beginning? Yes, yeah. you are. So I would say that actually flies in the face of, of the things that I believe in about teaching. So I, I adore teachers and I think that they're doing they're doing the work, right? They're, they're doing that deeply invested work. And so one of the things I'm always really sure about, especially now that I'm wearing a researcher hat, is that I never go into a classroom and say, these are the things that you're doing currently that you shouldn't be doing. Um, rather, I think that I'm supposed to be going in and learning from them. And so I would say off the bat, I don't have anything that I would say, don't do this. You know? um, what I would say about them as teachers is to start uh, believing that they matter and that they're super integral to the relationship between them and a student and that the more that they are open to understanding who they are and recognizing that actually students, that model of putting students at the center is not helpful to students because it does ignore the teacher and that the teacher is that part of the relationship and the relationship is what matters, uh, is that I would say to them, start truly investing in and believing that you matter a great deal and uncovering and understanding that better is what's going to help. Uh, I should say, I hate the word help is what's going to support and foster uh, that transition that we need in education to kind of put teaching and learning as the most important thing. Vanessa, I think that's a pretty fantastic way to, to close this out. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us. We, we really appreciate it. This has been, um, just a wonderfully thoughtful, I have a lot to, to kind of noodle on for the rest of the rest of my week. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's awesome. My pleasure. Thank you. So what is the alignment of your private, personal and perceived selves as a teacher? When you tell the story of your teaching, do any of them even rank as main characters? How did Dr. Rodriguez have you reconsidering faithful devotion to student-centeredness? How might that reconsideration work to improve your abilities to help students learn? For us, some sticky ideas were this question about the place of the teacher in a student-centered space. So if you put students at the center, uh, the struggle with that is that it then asks the question of, well, then where are you? And this thought on the importance of recognizing we're acting as a lens when we see our students, whether we like it or not. We're never teaching who the student is. We're always teaching who we believe the student is. And that's based on who we are. And finally, this idea that we would do well to remember teachers are learners too, and we might want to treat them as such. If we flip that model and we say everything we know about learning is true for students and teachers, then it allows us the kind of used models that we've used for students before to say teachers develop in much the same way any learner would because they're humans. So let's use some of those models of how to best support learners. Maybe we can decide it's not only acceptable, but helpful to write ourselves into our own teaching stories. 
how are you going to consider your perceived self and your awareness of what's happening in your classroom? Tell us about it on Twitter at Course of Mind and visit the Course of Mind website at courseofmind.org for more on teacher awareness, identities, and leaving this center open. You can read works from our guests and learn what we're learning. And join us for our next episode as we talk with Dr. Broer Saxberg on what learning actually is and how we can think about the brain in understanding motivation. Until next time, I'm Shana White. And I'm Zach Chase. And we'll learn with you next time. Course of Mind is an ISTE podcast made possible in part by a grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, DAF, an advised fund of Silicon Valley's Community Foundation. Our producer is Kripa Sundar. Our editor and music maestro is Trevor Stout. You can find Shana on Twitter at Shana V. White. And you can find Zach at MR Chase. And Kripa is at Kripa Sundar. And as always, for more on how the learning sciences can inform your practice, check out the Course of Mind Twitter feed at Course of Mind. Where you can learn about how other educators have applied learning sciences in the classroom and learn what we're learning.